What if I came up to you after church today and I said, hey, I finally saw that movie that you told me about, and man, was it awesome. And you would look at me, you're like, yeah, it was awesome, it was great. If you ever heard that conversation, you would know that that, uh, my, uh, that movie was pretty good, right? It, it, it was a good movie because we throw that word around a lot like that. What if I said, uh, you know, I came back from the basketball game last night, and wow, there was a fan sitting next to me, and he was obnoxious, 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 right? Mark would say it was a Gator fan, right? Um, but... Uh, Sorry, Gator fans. Uh, but you would know, like, this guy was in a whole different category of obnoxious fans. I mean, he wasn't just obnoxious. He was obnoxious and obnoxious. I mean, the repetitiveness of my comments would say that this guy was in a category completely on his own, right? So in Isaiah, when Isaiah is describing his vision of seeing God, he says that there's angels around the throne of God continuously crying out and saying with their eyes covered, their face covered, that God is holy, holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. So God is in a category of holiness that we can't even imagine. It's an entirely different category than we ever thought holiness could be. God is holy. Now, how does this tie into our text today in Romans chapter 12? I'm sorry, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. How does it tie in? Well, as we watch Jesus, he's in the final week of his life on earth before the crucifixion. And as he goes to the cross, many of the people who were following him, in fact, John uses the term repeatedly, people believed him in. They believed, they believed. But at the end of the day, when Jesus was resurrected and you had the disciples in the upper room, it was uh, maybe 100, 120 people. So a lot of the people who believed in Jesus clearly didn't understand or expect the fact that he would go to a cross. So Jesus goes and he dies. They're expecting a Messiah to conquer one who would meet their expectations we talked about. But Jesus to them was, must have been just another guy with messianic ambitions wanting to rescue the people, but at the end of the day, he proves himself to be like no other, everybody else, because he gets arrested, and so they abandon him. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, believe it or not, some people can read the same gospels that we read, and they can say, you know, Jesus was a martyr. He, you know, he, he didn't plan to be crucified. They took his life from him. But if you've checked through the book of John, the gospel of John, you know that this was Jesus' intention from the beginning. And why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Because of God's whole is holy, he's holy, and he's holy. And during this Passover time, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem, we understand that sin can't go under unpunished. God cannot allow sin to be unpunished. And so the love of God provides the escape from God's wrath through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The love of God provides escape from the wrath of God through the cross of Christ. God's holiness cannot let sin go unpunished. And this theme will be woven through the next weeks as we look at this final week of Jesus. So we're in John chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 20. And let's just remember as we talk about the crucifixion here in the next days that our freedom, our forgiveness, our purpose, purpose in life is wrapped up in that. So let's pray, and we'll look at our text this morning. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. And I think all of us would, if we're honest, admit that we just can't really even comprehend you being holy, more or less holy, holy, and holy. God, you are in a category completely of on your own, God. And we, we thank you that only through Jesus we can approach you in prayer and we can come to you because of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And God, I pray that as we look at the words of Christ today, that our lives will reflect this holiness that you've called us to, to be holy as you're holy. And God, may our lives take serious, may our hearts just allow the truth to sink in today and that we be changed through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, just to catch you up to speed, if you miss, last week Jesus enters into Jerusalem to great, incredible fanfare. It was on a Sunday, we know it, we celebrate it as Palm Sunday. But as I mentioned, the adoring crowd is also a, f- a fickle crowd. They're going to turn on him very, very soon. And I think it's a good reminder, and I can't remember this made it yet last week into the sermon or not. I think it may have cut it out before I said this. But if you only come to Jesus so he will do things as you expect him to, then you'll end up like this crowd. When things go south, when things go wrong, you'll just abandon him. And that's what the crowds did. When things went south in their mind, then they abandoned Jesus. And the same will happen to those who have a form of belief that's a superficial belief, but it's not truly a belief that understand and marvels at the holiness and the greatness of God. And so he's patiently working in us, those who are Christians, those who are believers. We're sure not perfect, and we're going to see at the end of the sermon that Peter abandoned Jesus initially. But obviously, he returned to Jesus and gave his life ultimately for Jesus because he was a true believer. And so Jesus is going to complete the work that he's started in you if you are a believer. You're, you're, you're truly, you've placed your faith in him. But superficial faith abandons Jesus, just like the people did. So in our text today, Jesus is going to say that true belief is evidenced by self-denial, cross-bearing, and submission. So let's look at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast, and we're talking about Passover here, were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so some Greeks, these were non-Jewish people. These were foreigners who were more than likely attracted to the God of Israel. And so they have come to Passover to celebrate God. And there's much, at this time, much of the world spoke Greek, so it was an easy way to refer to these Gentiles as Greeks. And so they were foreigners who were in Jerusalem. And they came to talk with Jesus, and they petitioned Philip. And it could be by chance, possibly, that Philip's name, unlike a lot of the disciples, had a, he had a Greek name, and so they could have recognized that. Also, the text in verse 21 notes that Philip was from Bethsaida in, in Galilee, and this area was known as, or was an area that was close to a Gentile region called the Decapolis, and so that could have been another reason why they approached Philip, was because they knew that he was familiar with the Greeks, he potentially could have been part Greek. And so the Greeks may have signaled them out for that reason. We don't know exactly, but the guys want to talk to Jesus. They know of Jesus' reputation. They know who Jesus is. 
his popularity, his fame has spread around. And the irony, if you followed with us last week, verse 19, when the Pharisees were getting nervous and they were getting concerned and they said, look, the world has gone after him. The world's going after Jesus. We've got to do something. Our plans are failing. The irony here that the world is coming to see Jesus. These foreigners, these Greeks have come to see Jesus. And so what does Philip do? He goes and he tells Andrew, verse 22, and Andrew and Philip, they go and they tell Jesus. So they come to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't respond and say, wow, that's great. Bring those guys here. Look, the world's coming to see me. This is incredible. I want to talk to these guys. Let's, let's, let's do this. He doesn't do that at all. In fact, Jesus goes in a completely different direction. Look at verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the glorification of Jesus is the death, and then it's going to be the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus, the new body, when he's ascended into heaven. But in this context here, he's referring to his death on the cross, the climax of his mission. His hour was the purpose that he came to the world for, which was to die on the cross. Again, this was no accident. He was no martyr. This was intentional, the plan from the beginning of the earth. In fact, Scripture says... And we've heard throughout this gospel, we've been in this gospel many weeks, right? And we've heard throughout this gospel, Jesus say things like, my hour is not yet come, right? We've heard that being said several occasions. And on other occasions, we've even heard when the religious authorities were trying to arrest Jesus and they weren't successful, the text notes because his time had not yet come. Well, now Jesus is communicating something different, right? He's saying his time is at hand. And this will be one of the first of several times that he says, my time is at hand. And so Philip and Andrew, they come to Jesus and says, hey, these guys want to talk to you, these foreigners. And he replies, my hour has not yet come. My hour is, is, is I mean, I'm sorry, my hour has come. My hour has come to be glorified. The time is near, guys. So what does that have to do with the conversation with the Greeks? Why doesn't he answer their questions? Instead, Jesus goes off on a metaphor. He gives us parable about seeds and plants, life and death, servants and masters. What's he talking about? We'll look at the first part of this today. We'll finish it up next week. Look at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus begins to speak in a parable. Now, parables are very common forms of teaching in, the, in Judaism. It was a normal way for people to hear truth communicated. It was a way of illustrating very profound, divine, deep truths. And the things that parables do, even for us today, they require us to really contemplate what's being said. They, re, they require us to slow down, to reflect upon the implications of the story and, that, and reflection is how we unpack a parable. And so think about parables like the prodigal son. You know, it's a, a parable that I can read again and again and again. I've read it hundreds of times in my life. But I continue to read it because there's just something about a parable, an allegory, a metaphor, that just, it, it just allows it to sit into your brain and, and you just kind of mull over it and, and reflect upon it. And that's what, exactly what Jesus is going to do in these next few verses. And then the text we'll look at again next week. And in verse 24, 
the, the implication, the, the significance is pretty clear in this verse that he's talking about his death that's going to happen here in the next few days. He says, truly, truly, read it again. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what is he talking about in that verse? Back when I was a kid, uh, we loved to, to do adventures. We loved to play war. Any kids, any boys in here in particular, you loved to play war when you were a kid. We had some woods up behind our house, and we would spend hours and days in the woods running through poison ivy in our camouflage and laying in the dirt and the dust, playing and pretending uh, to have warfare. But throughout the year, we actually were able to step up our game, and it became more than just play. It became actually real serious ammunition, all right? I'm not talking about bullets here, but I'm talking about a tree that was behind our house, a chestnut tree, all right? So I don't know if you've ever seen a chestnut tree or not, but chestnut trees have lethal weapons growing on them, okay? They do. These little burrs, these things that would come off onto the ground in our yard made some serious good weapons, all right? You could throw these and hit your brother, and they caused real, real pain, all right? They, they really hurt, all right? And even grabbing these things were bad. And so these were priceless, lethal weapons for us as kids. But one day I decided, you know, I'm going to take my, my lethal weapon. I took a nice-looking burr, and I, and I took a, a, something, maybe a hammer or a rock, and I cracked this thing open, and inside was this beautiful chestnut, this big chestnut. So I take the chestnut, and, and I dig a little hole in the yard, and I put the chestnut there in the ground and cover it over to see what might happen. Well, you know what happens when you plant a seed. Oftentimes, if you take care of it and it gets enough rain, a little sprout, a little tree begins to bud. And we saw this little thing begin to take root, and a little sapling come up into our yard. Well, we mowed it over in a few weeks, all right, when we had to mow the grass. But if we would have left it alone, we would have had a tree, and a tree eventually would have bared, would, would have borne and had its own fruit. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this parable. He's saying that through his death, through death, fruit will come about, that it will bear fruit, the fruit of salvation for God's glory and fruit to God. And so me taking my precious ammo and breaking it and planting it into the ground seemed like a tragedy maybe at the moment because I lost my ammunition. But it was no tragedy at all. That's where the fruit would come from. And so Jesus is saying his death is going to appear like a tragedy. People are going to look and say, well, just, just another Messiah. I, I want to be Messiah. Yet something so much greater is happening here. And, and I think Jesus, what he's saying is these Greeks want to see him and benefit for the reason that he's been sent into the world. They just need to wait a few days, all right? They just need to wait and see what happens over the next few days. The seed must die first, but the fruit of the seed will be amazing even for the non-Jewish people, for the foreigners of the world, for us, the Gentiles. So the point Jesus is making is clear. Death is the necessary condition for the generation of life. Death is the necessary condition for the generation of life, okay? We could stop right there, and everybody could say, well, that's good, that's great. 
go home, Jesus, we love you, we thank you for doing that. But Jesus doesn't end there because it's not just for Jesus that death is a requirement. It's also the case for the fruit, for those who receive life through his death. Look at verse 25. Jesus is going to show that death is the pathway to life for us as well. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be, my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So although Jesus' death accomplished something unique and special, he paid the penalty for sin, he took the wrath of God in our place, he died for us so we didn't have to spend eternity in hell, he was also pioneering a route along which his servants or his followers must go if they are going to follow him. Look at verse 25 and 26 again. Look at it carefully. He says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. You love your life, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, then you're going to be able to keep your life for eternal life. He says, if you want to serve me, you have to follow me. And what's he talking about? He's going to the cross. He's going to have to, my followers are going to have to follow me to a cross. Because Jesus says, where I am, that's where you're going to be. If you're going to follow me, you're going to be where I am. And then he says, those who serve me, you're going to receive the honor of my Father. The honor of my Father. And so as I mentioned, Peter earlier, who abandoned Jesus, he denied Jesus three times initially when Jesus was arrested. Of all people, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.21, he sums this up. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So after the resurrection, Peter got it. Peter saw Jesus go to the cross. He saw Jesus after the resurrection. He heard the words of Jesus, and the words of Jesus all of a sudden made sense to him. If you want to save your life, if you want to deny you know me, if you want to pretend like, I, I don't know part of that guy. That's not who I follow. No, I don't know that guy. You're going to lose your life. But if you give your life for the sake of the gospel, therein you find life. There you find life. And so what does it look like when Jesus says, we have to hate our life in, the, in this world? That's kind of a tough saying, right? Hate your life in this world. Scripture also oftentimes uses hate and love in contrast to one another. It doesn't mean necessarily you, you hate. Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your mother and father. He's not literally talking about despise your parents, okay? What he's saying is your love for me by comparison looks like hate to everything else, all right? So your love for Jesus and your love for football, right, it doesn't match up, right? Your love for Jesus should be such a strong love that your love for other things, football, entertainment, whatever, fill in the blank, should look like hate compared to love. That's Jesus' words, not my words, okay? And so Jesus says, you gotta hate your life in this world. So the way that you operate, the way you conduct your life in this world, it should look like that the things of this world, 
you almost hate these things in compared to the incredible love you have for Jesus Christ. That's some tough truth, right? That's some difficult, difficult things because we, we love so much of the world. We love so much of the things in the world, and we live in the richest nation that has ever existed in the history of the world, and we have everything, every convenience at our fingertips. How do we live in such a way? That's a great question, and I, I wish I could give you an easy answer to that question. But just like you, I had to wrestle and contemplate with this because this is not easy stuff. But these are the words of Jesus. And so at, at a minimum, I came over the list, and I hope the Holy Spirit will give you some things as well. We have to live in a way where we don't focus on ourselves. We pursue Jesus with passion and energy. So the focus isn't just me, me, me. What's in this for me? What do I get out of this? But it's on loving God and loving my neighbor, as Jesus said. And so to love your life is to focus, focus exclusively upon yourself. What I like. I like that. I didn't like that today. I don't like them. I like them. I don't like that. And it's to focus on us, 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 to use the three times, right? But we must focus on what Jesus wants, what he desires. It's the words of Jesus that we've read constantly through the Gospel of John is, Jesus said, I don't do what I, I, I only do what I see the Father doing. I don't do my thing. I do what the Father tells me to do. I do his will. And that has to be our mindset. And that's difficult. That's tough. And so another way to hate your life in this world is to focus on Jesus in every, let's, let's remember that word, every, every activity and situation. It's hard. That's a, that's a really high bar, isn't it? We have to fight the pull to become so absorbed by the interests of this life. Not to get called up in the things that everybody else is getting called up in. In fact, if we look around and see what culture is going crazy over, that's probably the things that we need to pull away from, to distance ourselves from. Doesn't mean we have to be weird and unusual in the world, but we should be unique. And it should be obvious through our love and devotion to Jesus and our love and compassion for others, there's something different about us. And so we sacrificially give up things of value for the sake of things that are of infinitely greater value. It's a mindset that says, I'm willing to sacrifice in the short term for life in the long term. If you're on a boat, right, this would be obvious, and the boat is sinking, and you know you gotta throw some stuff overboard or you're gonna drown, you're gonna be probably with joy throwing a lot of the things that you thought when you brought them on the boat were valuable and maybe not even able to replace, but you would gladly throw those over board in order to preserve your life. And so you give knowing that there's a greater goal in mind, which is eternal life. Now, let me be clear. Like Satan wants to blind the eyes of people so they don't understand the gospel. Hating your life in this world is not about a way to gain eternal life, all right? Some of you are wired in that way, because maybe your upbringing or the fact that you grew up in a church that constantly preached a work salvation. But this is not about a way to gain eternal life, but rather it's a characteristic of all 
who have eternal life. Those who are truly believers, if I can go back and quote what Brian said, which I would agree is, if not my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. A fundamental change happens at salvation. Our hearts, we get, we get a new operating system, a new CPU inside of us that allows us to operate in a way that's different than the world. And is it a process of sanctification, becoming more like Christ? Absolutely so. But that process starts in our lives. And through the Holy Spirit's work in your life and my life, more and more we see the value of giving up our lives for the sake of the gospel. And, you know, just thinking about Florence, I didn't know she was in her 90s. Sure doesn't look like she's in her 90s in that picture. But thinking about that, I mean, eye contact with Chuck and Joyce. Think about Buzz. Think about people who have given up a great deal. And Jesus says, if you've given up houses and lands, you're going to receive so much more. And those are the promises we hang on to. But you don't have to go to Africa or Honduras or to Alaska in order to serve Jesus Christ. There's great sacrifices that we can make right here in our city for the kingdom work. We give to the work of Christ. When you have that draft come out of your bank account each month or you write that check or you put that money in the box, Jesus says, there's reward for that. Now, if you're new to this church and you're like, oh, another preacher talking about money, I rarely ever talk about money. But money is a really, really good indicator of where your heart is. It really is. Because money just gives you the ability to do what you want to do, right? To live the way that you want to live. So if I have enough money, then I live life completely on my terms for what I want. So Jesus said money reveals your heart. It shows where your heart's at. Because the things that you spend, the priorities you make, those things reveal what's going on in your heart. And so we have to look at money. We have to look at our time. We have to look at the way we use our time. Think about your K group. Think about those who you are doing life with here at Grace Church. And I, and I hope every one of you, I know every one of you is not in a K group. I hope everyone will get into a K group. But those, that gives you a manageable size group of people that you can invest in and love and care and look out for. How are you doing with giving your time? What about sacrificing sleep or TV time so that you can be in God's word and so that God's word can change your heart and make your heart more like Jesus so that those sacrifices for his kingdom and that giving for his kingdom is, comes more natural to you. And that battle with the flesh, you begin to see the spirit as you feed the spirit and as you feed the word of God into your heart, you begin to see that those battles aren't near as tough as they used to be. Or when you do have them, they're less frequently happening in your life. That's what the Word of God does for you. And also, losing our life and living for Jesus and His kingdom, it allows us to look out for those who are needy or those who are, uh, are poor in this world. Brian mentioned that. It's funny, you mentioned that there's one guy that the church and, and Brian and Parker Payne were kind of in, in together here helping this guy and trying to help him, and the church is given to help him with his insurance. And, and there's people that we look out for in our community and we try to help through the difficult times that are struggling. And, and so God's called us to do that, to look out for the outcasts of our society, 
And, and he's, he's called us to love our enemies and forgive those who take advantage of us. And so we, we got to put names to these things that Jesus tells us to do. And then finally, we have to strive to be holy as God is holy, holy, holy. Through holiness, none will see God, Scripture says. We strive to be holy. Now, some people, including myself at parts in my life, thought that equating pursuing holiness was very much seemed legalistic, but it's not an enemy of grace. Some people think that pursuing holiness is an enemy of grace. In fact, I love this quote that I read. It says, Obedience offered in love is the fruit of grace and is the antidote to legalism. Obedience offered in love is the fruit of grace and is the antidote to legalism. So dying to ourself, in part, is putting away the passions and the desires that God says these are not the way that Christians, believers, those who want to reflect Jesus and follow Jesus should live their lives. Now, Galatians, and, and I'll just touch on this and we'll be finished. Galatians 5, credible chapter. I encourage you to read that. But in, in verse 24, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus, we've crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. We've crucified. So at the cross, when we received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that God declared us holy and righteous in him. And so now we have the ability to be who we are in Christ. And that's why when he goes on and writes in verse 19 through 21 and gives us lists, he says, these types of behaviors, these are not indicative of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. Look, let's read it. It's, it'll be on the screen, verse 19 through 21. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Very clear, he says. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, life comes through death. That's Jesus' point in his parable, and as we continue the parables that he's going to give on this next week, life comes through death. The things that we naturally, we impulsively want to live our lives, I want to please myself, I want to do what feels good to me, I want everybody to just follow my commands and wishes, I want to be God of my little universe. That is attempting to save your life in this world. But when we say, God, I want to recognize that life comes through death. I want to believe that to be the truth and put my faith in Jesus Christ. And then every day I'm going to offer obedience as the fruit of grace. I'm going to continuously preach the gospel to myself to remind myself of what Jesus did on the cross on my behalf. And through that gratitude and through my love for Jesus and through this, this intimate relationship with Jesus, he's literally changing my desires. And so little by little, these sinful desires and passions are chiseled away at my life. And I want to live my life differently than I did before. 
I want to live for his kingdom and for his glory, not for myself. And so Jesus says, you, you got to die. Life comes through death. In salvation, we come to Jesus knowing that we don't measure up. We need him. We, we can't do it, Jesus, without you. We need a savior. And we, we put our faith in Jesus. But the way we live our lives, we still continuously every day say, Jesus, I need you. I need you today if I'm going to have victory over these sins that are constantly besetting me, pulling me down, beating me down. And if you really dig deep, you'll see that they're probably deriving out of a heart that is constantly, habitually feeding the things of this world and the flesh rather than allowing God's word and his truth to saturate and fill us up. And so the formula is fairly simple. If you want to say the word formula, not a great word. The formula is fairly simple. If you want to pursue Jesus, you let the word of Christ fill you up. Let the word of Christ fill you up. Let the Spirit control you through the Word of God. There's no shortcut. There's no other way. Because the world offers too much. The things that we put in the place of it, I I can promise you, even though your life may be busy and hectic, you have time to do what you want to do. Are you taking time to be with God and letting His Word fill you up? So the hands application is very simple today. What priorities in your life need to change? Honestly. Honestly, what priorities need to change? What needs to change so that God's Word becomes a priority in your life? But it's too tough. I, I love binging on those shows. You feed the flesh, and you'll get the results of the flesh. You feed the Spirit, and you get the results of the Spirit. And Galatians 5 tells us what that is, right? Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. You have to die to live. Jesus makes it clear. We'll continue this next week. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus who gives us purpose, direction, breaks us out of just being religious and gives us heavy, deep truths that we have to contemplate the rest of our lives, that we must die in order to live, that we have to lose our lives and hate our lives in this world if we're going to find life. And God, I pray you'll help us not to run from those difficult statements, but help us to embrace those as truth and realities that bring us joy and bring glory to you, God, and bring us satisfaction because we know that in the end, we will be at peace with you and peace with ourselves, and we will find rest in living for your will, even as Jesus did for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, suffering the shame. And God, I pray you'll help us to see and have that mindset of Jesus this week. In his name we pray, amen.